Father in heaven, thank you once again for the privilege of being here tonight. Thank you for taking care of us today. Thank you for uh, giving us your word, which uh, gives us a, a clear path uh, as to where we need to walk and where things are leading to. We ask, Lord, that uh, you will bless us in our study tonight, the very important study on Daniel 8. Send your spirit to be with us so that we might be able to understand. And we thank you, Lord, because we do have a, the opportunity of coming before your throne boldly. And we know that you hear us because we come to you in the precious name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Amen. In our lesson tonight, we want to study uh, Daniel chapter 8. And uh, we'll just basically follow through the lesson the way we've done on previous nights. So let's go right to our introduction, and then I want to go back to uh, Daniel 7 just for a moment. In our lesson today, we will study the fascinating vision of Daniel 8. And I hope that you saw what's in parentheses. You will get a lot more out of this lesson if you, if you review Lesson 7, particularly the last section of the lesson uh, on Daniel 7, which would be Lesson number 5 in our series. We'll do a little bit of review tonight. As we begin, we notice that although Daniel 8 follows the same basic timeline as Daniel 7, there are four notable differences. Number one, Daniel 8 begins with the kingdom of Medo-Persia rather than with the kingdom of Babylon. You remember that in Daniel 7 we have Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome. Rome is divided into ten kingdoms. Then you have the little horn. And uh, something that I did not mention uh, is that after the little horn carries on its work for time, times, and the dividing of time, then you have a judgment scene that is taking place in heaven. Uh, the Bible says that the Father moves into the Holy of Holies. He sits down. Then the Son of Man is brought on the clouds to where the Ancient of Days had gone, to where God the Father had gone. And the Bible says that the books were opened and the little horn was judged for its behavior. And this is taking place in heaven. And then when the judgment ends, it says that the time came when the saints were given the kingdom by Jesus. And so you have this magnificent judgment scene in Daniel chapter 7, uh, which is repeated in a different way in Daniel 8, as we'll see tonight. But I just want you to notice that the first difference between Daniel 7 and Daniel 8 is that Daniel 8 begins with Medo-Persia. It does not begin with Babylon. And a little, in a little while, you're going to know why. Number two, while Daniel 7 has four carnivorous beasts, you know what carnivorous means? Right, in Spanish, the word carne. Ah, those of you who speak Spanish, immediately a smile came over on your face. <laughs> Daniel 7 has four carnivorous beasts. Daniel 8 has two domestic beasts. And let me just interject here that they are not just any old domestic beasts. They are the two principal beasts that were used in the sanctuary service in the daily sanctuary service and in the yearly sanctuary service. Uh, you know, and we'll talk about this in a little bit, uh, in a little while, that in the sanctuary service there was what was called the daily or the continual. Basically, 
a ram was offered in the morning and a ram was offered in the evening. And the ram was burning day and night on the altar in the court, the altar of sacrifice. That was known as the daily. It's one aspect of the daily, the daily sacrifice. But then there was a, a special animal that was used in the yearly service. It was a male goat or a he goat. Actually, there were two he goats involved in the yearly service. And, um, and so Daniel chapter 8 uses the two principal beasts of the Hebrew sanctuary system. One to represent the daily service and the other to represent the yearly service. In other words, what Daniel is trying to say is, and of course Gabriel is speaking to Daniel, he's saying the central theme of this chapter is what? Is the sanctuary service. And it has to do with the daily part of the sanctuary service, and it has to do with the yearly part of the sanctuary service. And in fact, we're going to notice that the little horn takes away the daily, and he's judged in the yearly service. <laughs> so it's interesting that the two beasts would be used, the two principal beasts in the Hebrew sanctuary service. A little bit later on, we'll talk more about the sanctuary service. But you see this difference, right? between the carnivorous beasts of Daniel 7 and only two domestic beasts of Daniel 8. Number three, in Daniel 7, there are two separate symbols for pagan and papal Rome. You have a dragon beast, which represents the Roman Empire, and then you have a little horn, which represents papal Rome, right? But in Daniel chapter 8, you only have one symbol that is used to represent both pagan and papal Rome. And I believe that the reason for that is because uh, God did not want to use any more than the two sanctuary beasts because he wanted to emphasize that Daniel 8 is deal dealing with the daily service and it's dealing with the yearly service. The little horn takes away the daily and God judges the little horn in the yearly service on Yom Kippur or on the great day of atonement. And so God wanted to use only two beasts. That's why there's only one symbol for both Romes in Daniel uh, chapter 8. And number four, the vision of Daniel 7 ends with the judgment and the everlasting kingdom. But the vision of Daniel 8 ends with the judgment and leaves the everlasting kingdom unexplained. In other words, the vision of Daniel 8 is different than the vision of Daniel 7 in its beginning and in its ending. It begins with Medo-Persia and it ends with the judgment, whereas Daniel 7 begins with Babylon and it ends with the everlasting kingdom. You have two parts missing, the first part and the last part in Daniel chapter 8, and there's a very special reason for that that we're going to study. Are you understanding the four points? Raise your hand if you understand the four points that we're underlining here. Very good. And those who didn't raise their hand, do I need to repeat it? Is it clear? Anybody have any questions or reservations? Speak now or forever hold your peace. <laughs> All right. Now, allow me to mention something about the Hebrew sanctuary because that's the foundation for what we're going to study tonight. And this will be reviewed probably for most of you, but in the Old Testament, God told Israel to build him a sanctuary that he might dwell in their midst. 
Now, the sanctuary was composed of four basic places. First of all, you have this court. And by the way, the entrance to the court was pointing east. And there was a very special purpose for that, and that is that when the people came to worship before God, their back was to the sun. All of the ancient pagan nations worshipped with their face to the sun. You can read that in Ezekiel 8.16. Even God's people had fallen into the mistake of worshipping the sun in the days of Ezekiel, God's own people. But God, and it says there that they had their backs to the temple of the Lord and they were looking towards the east and they were worshiping the sun. So God put the entrance at the east so that when people came to worship, they were facing west and the sun was at their backs. In other words, they were giving their back to the sun and they were facing the Lord. So you have the court and then you have three tribes of Israel camping uh, at each angle of the sanctuary. So the first place is the encampment, the sanctuary encampment where the 12 tribes of Israel resided. The second place is the court of the sanctuary. Now, the main piece of furniture in the court was known as the altar of burnt offering or the altar of sacrifice. All of the animals that were sacrificed were offered on this altar. And so they were brought, and basically what the sinner did, the sinner would place his hand, you can read this in Leviticus chapter 4, would place his hand on the head of the animal, and he would confess his sin on the head of the animal, whether it be a lamb or a goat or, or any other kind of animal that was used in the sanctuary service. The, the Hebrew uh, person would place his hand on the head of the animal and uh, confess his sin, and in that way the sin was transferred from the sinner to the animal. And then the sinner himself, and sometimes the priest, would slay the animal. They would shed the blood of the animal, representing the fact that the sin that had been transferred to the animal was now being punished in the animal instead of being punished in the sinner. Isn't that a beautiful symbol? I mean, it was grotesque having all of these animals killed in the Old Testament. But God was trying to teach his people in the Old Testament how he was going to deal with sin and how terrible sin is. The wages of sin is death. But the sinner doesn't have to die. A sacrifice was found to die in place of the sinner. Wonderful. Even in the Old Testament, you have a clear revelation of Jesus Christ. Then inside the court, you had the sanctuary building proper. You have what is known, let's put here court, so that you can, uh, uh, by the way, this is my version of PowerPoint. <laughs> uh, you have the entrance into the holy place, uh, and the holy place has had three items of furniture. It had the table of the showbread on the north, which had 12 loaves of bread uh, in other words, there was enough bread for all Israel, is what is being illustrated here. And the loaves were in two stacks on top of the table of the showbread. Then in the south, and by the way, you would expect it to be in the south, because the south is where there is no light, according to what we studied in previous lectures. In the south of the holy place, you have the seven-branched candlestick. The number seven represents perfection. The oil in this uh, seven-branch candlestick represents the Holy Spirit. And the light is, the, is a symbol of Jesus. The Bible says that Jesus is the light of the world. Beautiful symbols. And by the way, this is also a symbol. The bread is a symbol of Christ. 
Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And of course, the word of God is Jesus. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So the bread represents Jesus. The candlestick represents the light that Jesus gives. And then right before the veil, which divided the, the holy place from the most holy place, there was what is known as the golden altar or the altar of incense. Only incense was placed on that altar. And basically, uh, the incense would climb up the veil and it would go over the veil into the presence of God. Uh, that altar of incense represented Christ's continual intercession before his Father for our sins. In other words, Jesus is our light. Jesus is our word. Jesus is our only intercessor. And the altar indicated that Jesus is our only sacrifice. In other words, Jesus is our all, according to this. And by the way, in the sanctuary system, you needed two symbols to represent Christ. You needed a priest and you needed a sacrifice. Because if the, if the priest sacrificed himself, he was dead. <laughs> and so in the Old Testament, you needed two symbols to represent one function of Christ. See, the priest would offer the sacrifice. But with Jesus, the Bible says that he's the priest and he is the sacrifice because he offers himself. He's the officiating priest and he's also the sacrifice at the same time. He's the victim as well as the priest. And so you have the holy place of the sanctuary, which represents uh, the intercession of Christ. By the way, this represents the sacrifice of Christ in the court, his sacrifice. Uh, the holy place represents his intercession. And then, of course, you have the most holy place behind uh, the second curtain, because the first curtain is the one that leads from the court into the holy place. You have the second curtain, which leads into the most holy place. And what did you have in the most holy place? You had the Ark of the Covenant with the two covering cherubs on each side. And who was manifested in the middle? Oh, between the cherubim. Remember we studied this? Psalm 80 and verse 1. You who dwell between the cherubim, or between the two archangels. And then, of course, uh, inside the Ark of the Covenant... Uh, were the tables of stone, the Ten Commandments. And it's interesting that the presence of God would be manifested on what is known as the mercy seat, the cover of, of this Ark of the Covenant. And that's where the, where the glory of God rested, on the cover of the Ark of the Covenant. And below that cover was the law of God, which is the foundation of God's government. See, it's the foundation of His throne. That's why the Bible says that the law of God is the foundation of God's throne. And of course, we're going to find that at the very center of the most holy place is also Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ is not only the sacrifice, Jesus is not only the intercessor, Jesus Christ is also the judge. The most holy place represented judgment. That's where the Day of Atonement ceremony took place. That's where the cases of all the Israelites was analyzed. Now, I want you to catch a picture of what we have here. The animal was sacrificed in the court. The sin was placed on the head of the animal. The animal died in place of the sinner. Let me ask you, could the sinner now go home, jumping for joy, and say, say, I am forgiven? Could he say that? Yes, he could. He no longer had the sin. Who had it? 
The animal had the sin, and then the animal died for the sin. But was that all? No. Because the Bible says that the priest would then take the blood which had the sin in it, because sin is transferred by the blood, and the priest would take the blood into the holy place, and he would sprinkle it where? He would sprinkle it on the veil between the holy and the most holy place. In this way, sin was being transferred from the sinner to the victim, to where? To the sanctuary. Now, did the sinner have to be worried that his sin was covered by the blood in the sanctuary? Some people say, oh, you mean to say the, sin, the record of sin was on the veil in the sanctuary transferred there? How could, the, how could the Israelite then have security of salvation? Listen, his greatest assurance or her greatest assurance was to have the sin in the sanctuary because if it wasn't in the sanctuary, it was on them. You see, once it was transferred to the victim and to the sanctuary, the sinner was free from the condemnation of the law, from the condemnation of sin, because the victim had taken it and the sin had been transferred where? To the sanctuary. But I want you to notice that throughout the course of the whole year, what was accumulating in the sanctuary? Sin. The record of all the sins that were confessed, that were, by the way, that were confessed and forgiven. Because what was in the sanctuary were forgiven sins. Any sin that did not go into the sanctuary was not forgiven. Are you with me? So the greatest assurance of the Israelite was to have his sins in the sanctuary. Because there they were covered by the blood. If they weren't there, they were in his life. But at the end of the year, it became necessary to cleanse what? To cleanse the sanctuary from all the sins that had gathered in there. To see whether the Israelite had truly confessed sin out of a love relationship with the Lord, whether they truly had a relationship with Jesus, the books were opened. In other words, the cases were examined on the great day of atonement, and then the sanctuary was cleansed of the record of sin. Are you understanding the process? Now, with this in mind, it's going to be a lot easier for us to understand the lesson. Let's go to where it says the literary structure of the vision. It is of critical importance to realize that Daniel 8 is divided into two parts. The vision in verses 1 to 14 and the explanation of the vision in verses 15 to 26. Did you catch that in your study? A careful study indicates that each part of the vision is carefully explained in the last half of the chapter. Except for what? Except for the time reference to the 2300 evenings and mornings. It would be well to bear this in mind as we wade through the chapter. Also, the totality of the vision of Daniel 8, 1-14 is described by the Hebrew word chason. It would be well to keep this in mind for future reference as well. And what I want to do now is I want to show you that everything... This is of critical importance, what I'm going to say now. I want to show you that every portion of the vision was explained in the second half of the chapter except for the sanctuary part. In other words, the explanation reaches up to where it talks about the little horn rising against the prince. But after that, the, the, the casting down of the sanctuary that is spoken up in the, of in the vision, there's no explanation. Because the Bible says that Daniel got sick and he fainted. There was something in the time period, the 2300 days that made him sick and made him faint. And we're going to notice tonight what that is. Now go with me to Daniel chapter 8 
And uh, I want you to notice how everything in the first half in the vision is explained in the second half of the chapter. What do you have first in Daniel chapter 8? You have a what? You have a ram. Correct? How many horns does a ram have? The ram has two horns. One of the horns is what? Higher than the other, and the highest one came out last. This is amazing how this was fulfilled in history. It's just mind-boggling how, how something like this could be fulfilled to the very letter long before it even happened. Now, let me ask you, is that ram explained in the second half of the chapter? Yes, go with me to Daniel 8 and verse 20. The ram which you saw having the two horns, they are the kings of what? Media and Persia. See, no reason to speculate. Media and Persia. And then what animal do you have? You have a male what? You have a male goat. Is the male goat explained? Yes. Notice verse 21. And the male goat is the kingdom of what? Is the kingdom of Greece. By the way, that male goat had uh, one notable what? One no notable horn. Is that notable horn explained? Yes, the notable horn is its first what? Is its first king. Oh, but then when that horn was broken, what happened? Four came out. Is that explained in the last half of the chapter? Yes. Notice what it says in verse uh, 22. As for the broken horn and the four that stood up in its place, four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation. Let me ask you, does the male goat have the four horns when he first arises to power? Remember the little horn of Daniel 7? Did the dragon beast have the little horn when it first arose to power? No. Because first the dragon beast rules, then it sprouts what? Ten horns, and then among the ten comes out the little one. There's a sequence. The same with the kingdom of Greece. You have this male goat. He has a notable horn. He rules for a while with a notable horn. The great horn is broken, and then four come out. The four come out after this kingdom has ruled for a while. Is that clear in your mind? So it says four kingdoms shall rise out of that nation, but not with his power. And so are the four horns explained? Yes or no? Yes, the four horns are explained. And then what do you have after the ram, the male goat that has one horn, and the four horns that come from the head of the male goat? Well, you have a little what? A little horn. And I want you to notice what the little horn does. It says that he grew exceedingly, verse 9, toward the south, toward the east, and toward the glorious land. And it grew up to the host of heaven. Now notice this. And it cast down some of the host and some of the stars to the what? To the ground. Notice, some of the host and some of the what? And some of the stars. It cast them to the ground and what? Trampled on them. So you have a little horn that tramples on the host and on the stars. Is that explained in the last half of the chapter? Absolutely. Go with me to verse 23. And in the latter time of their kingdom, 
when the transgressors have reached their fullness, a king shall arise having fierce features. Is this the same little horn that's being explained now? Yes or no? Okay, so you have the explanation of the little horn. Continue saying, verse 24, His power shall be mighty, but not by his own power. And you remember they trampled the stars? Remember that? Trampled the stars and the host? Now what does that mean? Well, it says, He shall destroy fearfully, shall prosper and thrive. He shall destroy the what? The mighty and also the what? The holy people. What is the host and the stars? The what? The mighty and the holy people. Are you with me? Is the explanation following the vision? Yes, it is. But now I want you to notice that there is something which is not explained. The next thing that the little horn does is he tramples, on the, he takes the place of the sanctuary and he what? He takes the place of his sanctuary and he throws it down to the earth. The place of Christ's sanctuary. Taken and thrown down to the earth. And then a question of, of course is asked uh, until when is this going to take place that the sanctuary is going to be trampled? And uh, the answer comes back, unto 2300 days of evening and morning, then shall the sanctuary be what? Then shall the sanctuary be cleansed. But I want you to notice that the, uh, the sanctuary, the cleansing of the sanctuary itself is not explained. Neither is the time period. Does Daniel 8 give us any reference as to where we're supposed to begin the 2300 days? No, it doesn't tell us where to begin the 2300 days. Now notice verse 26. It says, and the vision of the evenings and mornings, which was told is true. And then what does he say? Therefore seal up the what? The vision, for it refers to many days in the future. Is any explanation given about the sanctuary and the 2300 days? Absolutely not. In fact, we're told in verse 27, and I, Daniel, fainted and was sick for days. This, this vision made him sick. And it wasn't because the little horn was so terrible, because he'd seen these ravenous beast, beasts in Daniel 7, <laughs> and he didn't get sick there. There's something about this time period that made Daniel sick. And we want to study that tonight. And so he says, and afterward I arose and went about the king's business. I was astonished by the vision, but no one what? understood it. Now wait a minute. Had the vision been explained? Had the vision been explained? Yeah. Of course. Except for what? It for, except for the sanctuary and the 2300 days. So what is the part that Daniel does not understand? The sanctuary and the 2300 days, the time period. And by the way, this will become absolutely clear as we study the lesson. I just want you to keep that in mind. Now, let's go through the first two sections, and we can do it quickly now that I've given this explanation. Number one of uh, the section that says the bear and the ram. In Daniel 7, the bear was raised up on one side and had three what? Three ribs in its mouth. Did you see that the ram of Daniel 8 is parallel? The ram in Daniel uh, 8 has two horns and one was what? 
See, the bear is higher on one side, and there's a horn that's higher than the other. And the tallest one came out what? Last. If you look at the dynasty of the Medes and Persians, the amazing thing is, and by the way, I could give you a sheet if you're interested in having a sheet that has all of the dynasty of the Medes and Persians, the whole history of Medo-Persia, you'll find that at first the Medes and the Persians ruled together, but very quickly the Medes disappeared and the Persians were the only ones who ruled. And it's, and it's so much so that starting in Daniel chapter 10, no longer is Medo-Persia mentioned. Whenever that kingdom is mentioned, it's called Persia. From Daniel 10 on, it's called Persia. It's not called Medo-Persia anymore because Medo has disappeared in history. So this is precisely what happened in history. Now, notice also that the ram conquered in how many directions of the compass? Westward, which con it conquered Babylon in 539. Medo-Persia did. You can find that in Daniel 5. The north, it conquered Lydia in 546. And southward, it conquered Egypt in 525. So it conquers these three kingdoms to rise to power. This happened historically. So you see three ribs, three directions of the compass. So let me ask you, is the bear and the ram, do they represent the same power? Yes, yes they do. Now let's go to number two. The ram represents the kings of what? Media. Of Media and Persia. No room for guesswork. Right? right. Okay. Note. It is obvious that the bear and the ram represent the same historical power. The three ribs are the three provinces of the Babylonian Empire which Medo-Persia had to overcome in order to rise to power. Babylon, Lydia, and Egypt. It is also historically true that the kingdom of Persia was more powerful than Media and came out last. Now let's go to the next section. The leopard of Daniel 7 had what? Four wings and four heads. By the way, did the leopard have four heads when it first arose to power? No, because the four horns came out later so, later, so the four heads must have come out later too. See how important it is to compare the two outlines? A leopard is a swift animal, but wings make it even swifter. The male goat of Daniel 8 was flying so swiftly that it didn't even touch the what? The ground. Do you see the connection between the leopard with wings and uh, the he-goat that's flying through the air is not even touching the ground? And the four heads of the leopard are equivalent to what? To the four horns that come out on the head of the he-goat or the male goat. See, it's, it's so simple. Okay, number two. The male goat represents the kingdom of what? Greece. Greece. And the large horn represents its first king. Alexander the Great was the first king of the dynasty of Greece. He conquered the world from Athens to the Hindus Valley in only three years. Huh, interesting. It took uh, Nebuchadnezzar nine years just to conquer Tyre. And Alexander, you know, he died when he was in, in his early 30s because he didn't have anything more to conquer. So he killed himself, he made himself drunk and, and he just intoxicated himself so much that he killed himself. When Alexander died, the kingdom was eventually divided into four kingdoms. The Antigonids, who governed in Macedonia and Greece in the west. The Ptolemies, who ruled Egypt in the south. The Seleucids, who ruled Syria and Mesopotamia in the east. And the Attalids, who ruled the kingdom of Pergamum in 
the North. And I debated on whether to put a quotation from a historian. I didn't because I don't want to run too many pages on this. But let me just read you a statement by a historian. His name is W.W. W. Tarn. His book is Hellenistic Civilization. Uh, the page is page six. He says, he, that is Alexander, left no heir and had made no arrangements for carrying on the government. Interesting that, uh, that, that Daniel 8 says that four would arise, but not in his power. He left no successors. They continue saying, once the uprisings of Greece in the Lamian War and of the Greeks in the Far East were defeated, a struggle for power started among his generals, that is, among uh, Alexander's generals, in the shape of war between satraps, that's territorial dynasts, and whatever central power aimed at general control. The Battle of Ipsus in 301 definitely decided that the Greco-Macedonian world could not be held together. And that, and that world presently returned very much to the political shape it had before Alexander, though under different rulers and a different civilization. Now listen to this. By 275, three dynasties descended from three of his generals. They were well established. The Seleucids ruled much of what had been the Persian Empire in Asia. The Ptolemies ruled Egypt. And the Antigonids, Macedonia. A fourth European dynasty, not connected with Alexander, the Attalids of Pergamum, subsequently grew up in Asia Minor at, the, at Seleucid expense and became great by the favor of Rome. So there you have the four kingdoms, the Seleucids, the Antigonids, the uh, Ptolemies, and the kingdom of Pergamum. And historians will bear this out. Now, let's go to the next page. The work of the little horn. Yes. He had three that divided the territory. They fought among themselves. They formed their own kingdom. And then there was a fourth kingdom that was not related to any of the generals of Alexander. Yes. But he did have four generals. But only three of them actually established lasting kingdoms. And then, of course, you have the kingdom of Pergamum. Okay. Yes. Uh, he, he was a real young guy. Okay, the work of the little horn. There can be no doubt that the little horn of Daniel 7 and 8 represent the same historical power. Did you understand that? Yes. Let's look at the parallels. Both are called a what? A little horn. If Daniel had wanted to say that this is a different power, why would he say a little horn? And by the way, you know what's, what's extremely interesting? Daniel 7 was written in uh, Aramaic, and Daniel 8 was written in Hebrew. Um, I don't know whether you knew that or not. But you know what's interesting? There's a different word for horn in Aramaic than there is in Hebrew. But the word little for little horn in both Daniel 7 and 8 are the same Hebrew word. In other words, what Daniel wants to emphasize is that this is the same little horn in both chapters. Now, notice, after small beginnings, both later became what? Became great. In fact, let me just mention this quickly. We don't have time to read the verses, but if you read Daniel 8 verse 4, it says that the, that the uh, ram became great. If you read Daniel 8 and verse 8 about the male goat, it says he became very great. And then when you read about the little horn in Daniel 8 and verse 9, it says he became exceeding great. 
Do you know that some scholars believe that this little horn was a, was a puny little ruler called Antiochus Epiphanes? It can't be. Because the kingdom of Medo-Persia and the kingdom of Greece were far more powerful than this puny little ruler who became subservient to Rome. You have a progression of power, don't you hear? The ram was great. The male goat was very great. But the little horn was exceeding great. Now also, going back to this list, the little horn of Daniel 7 made what? War, War against the saints. And the little horn of Daniel 8 destroyed the what? The holy people. By the way, lest you don't know the word saints, the word saints and the word holy mean the same thing. How do we say holy in Spanish? Santo. In Spanish, holy is santo. So in other words, in Daniel 7, it says he persecutes the saints, but in Daniel 8, he says he persecutes the what? The holy people, which are the same thing as the saints. They're God's people. So both horns persecute God's people. Both are described as boastful, boastful and arrogant, right? The little horn of Daniel 7 has what? Eyes like the eyes of a what? Of a man. What do eyes represent in prophecy? Eyes represent wisdom, sagacity, cunningness. Let me just, do you know we still have remnants of that idea today? At graduation time, what animal represents, uh, is used very frequently on graduation cards? A what? An owl. Why? Because the owl has, because the graduate is very wise. See? And so the owl has what? Big eyes. Eyes represent wisdom and cunning. Haftiness. Sagacity. Is that exactly the same thing that we have about the little horn in Daniel 8? Yes. In fact, the little horn in Daniel 8, it says through his what? Cunning. Through his cunning, he causes what? Craft to prosper. See, he's crafty, smart, wise. Wise as a what? As a serpent. Now, both constitute the what? The last kingdom on earth before Jesus comes again. They are at the climax of the vision. Now, you can only have one last power. Or can you have two last powers? When you say the last power, it must be the last power. And so if in Daniel 7 and 8, the little horn is the last power, they must represent the same power. Are you with me? The activities of both extend until the time of the what? The time of the end. And both come to their end when? When Jesus destroys them. In other words, they come to their end and they have no one to what? To help them. So are the two horns the same power? Yes, they are. And what did the little horn of Daniel 7 represent? What historical system? The papacy, the Roman Catholic system. And so the, the little horn in Daniel 8 must represent what? Must represent the same power, but from a different angle. See, Daniel 7 emphasizes one thing. The emphasis in Daniel 8 is what Roman Catholicism does to the sanctuary service. In a minute, we'll get to that. 
Number two, the ram and the male goat fought on a horizontal level against each other. Do you know what I mean by horizontal level? Is there any evidence that the ram uh, started fighting against the God of heaven? No. The ram fights against whom? Against the goat. Or uh, the, rather, the goat fights against the ram, right? In other words, you're dealing with a fight on a historical level. There's no, no fight between earth and heaven. It says that the little horn also grew horizontally first, didn't it? Because it says it grew towards the south, which is, which is Egypt, toward the east, Greece, Syria, and Asia Minor, and toward the glorious land, which is what? Israel. Number three. But then the little horn grew what? Vertically, different than the previous powers. See, now it's not only fighting the previous power horizontally, now its fight is going to be with who? With the God of heaven. Is that the same thing with the little horn of Daniel 7? Absolutely. And notice what it says. He grew vertically up to the what? The host of heaven. And it cast down some of the what? Some of the host and some of the stars to the ground. Now the angels are God's heavenly hosts. But this power is governing, is this power governing in heaven or on earth? On earth. Is he grabbing the heavenly stars, the angels, and throwing them down to the earth? No, he can't be doing that. So what do we have here? Let's go to our next question. God also caused his people in Exodus 7 for my what? Armies. My armies. Unfortunately, many times, translators of Bible versions will translate a word differently in two texts. It's interesting. The word that is used here in Exodus 7, 4, where Israel is called God's armies is the identical word for hosts in Daniel chapter 8. But you would never know it by the translation. If you want to check up on me and see whether I'm telling you the truth, go to Strong's Concordance, like we talked about, and look in the back of Strong's, look up the word hosts, and look at the number in the back of Strong's Concordance, and then look up the word armies, and look up the number in the back of the concordance, and you'll see that the number is the same. It's the same Hebrew word. In other words, Israel are the armies of the Lord, according to Exodus 7, verse 4, and there are other references as well. Now notice, Daniel 8, 24, tells us that God's host is who? The what? The mighty, and also the holy what? The holy people. Who is it that the little horn is casting down? He's persecuting whom? The saints of God. And you say, now wait a minute, it doesn't say that he took the stars of heaven and he cast them down? Yes, it does say that. But when he fights against God's people, he's fighting against God. You say, how's that? Well, you remember when Saul of Tarsus was on the road to Damascus. Jesus appeared to him. And Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute my church? No, no. Oh, thank you very much. Good. You're right on the ball. Me. Jesus said, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? Who was Saul of Tarsus persecuting? God's holy people. And by doing that, he's fighting against whom? He's fighting against God. In other words, it's talking about the same persecution that took place during the time, times, and dividing of time.
Casting down is also killing. That's what it means. And trampling on them, it even says. Now, I want you to notice this. The last part of number four. Oh, we have two number fours here. What do you know? It's all right. That's a good number. <laughs> In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul uses military terminology to describe the people of God. Some people might say, well, why does God call Israel his armies? Simply because God uses military terminology to describe his people because his people are an army. Have you ever read in Ephesians 6 where the Apostle Paul says that we're supposed to we're supposed to garb ourselves with the whole armor of God and then he speaks about the sword and he speaks about the shield and he speaks about the helmet and he speaks about the breastplate? Mm -hmm. See, God's people are spoken of as an army. And who's the general? Jesus. The devil's hosts are also talked about as an army. And who's the general? Satan is the general, see? So there's two armies. But it's not talking about a physical battle on earth. It's talking about a spiritual battle over spiritual issues, over truth and error, right and wrong, good and evil. That's the issue in this war. It's not oil in the Middle East. That's a distraction. It's not Arabs versus Jews. See, because that's a distraction too. Arabs versus Jews, what does that have to do with those who keep the commandments of God? What does that have to do with the devil hating those who have the testimony of Jesus? What does that have to do with those who have the patience of the saints? Nothing. But the devil wants people to look east when things are taking place in the west. Because when you're looking over there, you can't see the fulfillment of prophecy here. Serious business that we're talking about here. That's why this seminar is so important. And I hope it's been an eye-opener for many of you. Because we're dealing with life and death issues, folks. We're not dealing with academics here. Well, you know, I want to know more about Bible prophecy. We're talking about salvation or perdition in the study of these prophecies. Now, does the Apostle Paul God, call God's people saints in the New Testament also? Yes, so God's armies are composed of saints, just like you have in the Old Testament, in this prophecy. Now let's go to the second number four. <laughs> in verse 11, the little horn attacks the what? The prince of the host. Now, who is the prince of the host? If the host is his spiritual armies, then the prince of the host must be what? Must be the general. And who is this general? Here's we, here we have another case of where something is translated differently in two verses by the King James, by the New King James, and you would never know that it's the same identical expression unless you went to the concordance. It's tragic and sad that it's not always translated the same. And you don't have to take my word for it. I challenge you to check me out on all of these things. Go to a concordance. Get a Strong's Concordance. Strong's for the strong, you know. And, and look up in the back. Joshua 5, the key words in Joshua 5, and the key words in Daniel 8. And you'll find that the prince of the host is the identical expression that we find in Joshua chapter 5. And basically what we find there in Joshua is that Joshua is on the road to Jericho and he, and he meets this tremendous military commander. And he says, are you with us or are you with our enemies? And notice what this individual answers. He identifies himself as the what? As the commander. 
That's the same word prince. Look up commander in, in the Strong's Concordance and you'll see that commander is the same word as prince. Uh, by the way, the word is tsar. That's where we get the word tsar from. You ever heard of tsar? Yeah? In Russia? The tsar? Well, that's prince. Same word. Now let's continue here. And what did Joshua do when he was confronted by this individual who identified himself as the commander of the army of the Lord? He bowed down in what? Whoa! What did this prince receive? Worship. Is this some common ordinary angel? No, because in Revelation 19 and verse 10, the angel Gabriel told John, get up. I'm a fellow servant with you. Don't worship me. Worship God. But here, the commander of the Lord's host receives what? Worship. And then, lest you have any doubt still, it says that this being commanded him to remove his what? His shoes. Because he was standing on what? On holy ground. Can you think of one other episode in the Bible where uh, somebody was told to remove his shoes because he was standing on holy ground? Moses. And who appeared to Moses in the bush? One who identified himself as the I am that I am. Who is this prince of the host? This prince of the host is none other than Jesus Christ. The war is against the little horn and whom? And Jesus. Serious business. Now we go to the real number five. The little horn is also said to take away the what? Daily. Now listen. When in the King James Version you read a word that's in italics, it means that the translators thought it belonged there, but it's not part of the original text. If you look in your Bibles, in this text, you're going to find that the word sacrifices is in italics. Which means that, it, that it's not in the original Hebrew language. The translators put it there because they're interpreting what they think the daily means. But the daily is much more ample, much wider than just the daily sacrifice. Now let's notice the note. Very important. The word daily is an adjective. And it appears without any qualifying noun. Immediately you ask the question, daily what? For example, give us this day our daily bread. You say, okay, well now I know what the daily is, it's bread. But here it simply says that the little horn takes away what? He takes away the daily. You say, the daily what? And by the way, the word daily has the definite article. This is not any old daily, it is the daily. It is a specific daily. By the way, it's also translated in the Old Testament, continual. Let's notice our second point here. The Hebrew word tamid, which is daily, simply means something which goes on continuously without interruption. That's what the word means. Something that goes continuously, goes and goes and goes without interruption. Now the word is used to describe the continual ministration of the priest in behalf of his people in the court and in the holy place of the sanctuary. And you'll notice here in the note that it is used to describe the daily sacrifice. In other words, the sacrifice which was offered in the morning and in the evening. 
which represented the sacrifice of whom? The sacrifice of Jesus. It was done continually. Tamid. Over and over and over again. It was the continual sacrifice because it was done continuously evening and morning. Are you understanding what I'm saying? Now what did that sacrifice represent? It represented the sacrifice of whom? Of Jesus Christ. But now I want to ask you this. Does the sacrifice of Jesus is the sacrifice of Jesus repeated over and over and over again? Or does his one sacrifice have value forever? His one sacrifice has value for what? Forever. In other words, the sacrifice, the continual sacrifice, represented the sacrifice of Jesus offered once for all, which has a repercussion forever in favor of his people. In fact, the book of Hebrews said that he does not need to sacrifice himself over and over again because he did this once for all by offering himself. I have the text in the lesson, if you look them up, in the book of Hebrews. Let me ask you, what does the Roman Catholic Church teach about the Mass? See, in Roman Catholicism, the idea is that Jesus... When people go to the Mass, first of all, they worship the host. They also believe that the host, you know what I mean by the host? The hostia, the round wafer. They also believe that in each wafer on planet Earth, Jesus is totally contained in each wafer. That is not part of Jesus. When you take the wafer, you're partaking of the whole Jesus. Complete. The wafer is not a wafer, it's the real body of Jesus. And each time that the, the sacrifice of the mass, mass is offered, Jesus is sacrificed over and over again. And people, instead of looking to heaven, to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus, they look to what the priest is doing, and they look to that little host that is placed on their tongue. Their vision is misguided from heaven to where? To what happens on earth. In other words, the little horn took away... Christ's function as the only sacrifice. But there's more. It says here, in the holy place of the sanctuary there was a table with the what? With the showbread or continual bread. The word continual there is the word tamid, the identical word that you find in Daniel chapter 8. Why was it called continual, continual bread? Because it was supposed to be on the table continually without interruption. Now what does that bread represent? The bread represents Christ. But not only Christ in person, but Christ as he is found where? In his word. You remember that Jesus said on the Mount of Temptation to the devil, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every Word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. What does the bread represent? According to Jesus, it represents the word of God. And by the way, in John chapter 6, uh, in verse, 60, uh, verse 63, we find that uh, Jesus is having a conversation with the Jews. And Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you'll have no life in you. And of course, the Jews who were listening, they were alarmed. They said, what? 
Is this man teaching us to be cannibals that we're supposed to eat the flesh and blood of Jesus? So a little bit later on in John 6, 63, Jesus says, listen, folks, let me explain myself. Eating my flesh and drinking my blood profit is nothing. It's useless. It's valueless. He said, it is the spirit that gives life. And then he says, it is my word, which what? That gives you life. Through the work of the Holy Spirit. In other words, how do we partake of Jesus? How do we assimilate Jesus? We assimilate him through the study of what? To the, to the study of his word. For that reason the psalmist said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. What is it that leads us to overcome sin? Eating a little wafer? No! What leads us to gain the victory over sin, to be cleansed from sin? In John 15 verse 3, Jesus says that we're cleansed by the word. Let me ask you, what did the Roman Catholic Church substitute in place of the Word of God? I'm going to mention several practices that don't have one little iota of presence in God's Word. Purgatory. Limbo. Celibacy. The Roman Catholic Church wouldn't be having all the problems they have now if they followed the example of the first pope. They say it's the first pope, Peter. Do you know that the Bible says that Peter was married? Do you know that on all of the lists of the bishops and the elders and the deacons and leaders of the church, the Bible says that they were supposed to be husbands of one wife? And yet the Roman Catholic Church teaches no marriage for the priests. The priests need to be married. That's what the Bible says. Auricular confession. That is going to the confessional, confessing your sins to a priest. The Bible says that we're supposed to confess our priest's own, our sins only to Jesus. Lent, processions, the mass, relics, canonization of saints. Where do you find the canonization of saints in scripture? The rosary, <coughs> bowing before image, images. The idea that Mary was, was conceived immaculately. The assumption of Mary. There's no mention in the Bible of the assumption of Mary. Baptism of infants. By sprinkling. The Bible says that baptism should always be of adults and it should be by immersion. The observance of Sunday. The immortality of the soul. I could go on and on and on and mention teachings that the Roman Catholic Church has which are not in harmony with God's Word. So that the conflict is between the Word of God and the traditions of men. See? So, so what the little horn did, he took away the Word of God and he placed his traditions. He took away the one sacrifice of Christ and placed a multiple sacrifice. But there's more. Notice at the bottom of page 2. In the holy place was a seven-branched candlestick. The light of this candlestick was to burn before the Lord. How? Tamid. Continuously. The number seven denotes perfection. And the light represents Jesus, who is the light of the world. What is the period of Roman, uh, of Roman Catholic dominion called? It is called the Dark Ages. Why do you suppose it's called the Dark Ages? Because instead of Jesus being the light, by the way, I'm not saying this, I don't want to be offensive to anyone who grew up a Catholic or, or, or you know, I'm not, this is not a reflection on individual Catholics. Indivi there are many individual Catholics that love the Lord. They don't know any better. 
They're doing the best they can with the life that they've received. God loves them. And they love the Lord. But they need to know these things. Because, because their hope is misplaced. Their hope is looking in a place where, where, where God cannot save the person. See, sincerity will never save you. The Bible says, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know, uh, my heart bleeds for people who are following this system. Because, because they love the Lord, they don't know any better. And by the way, if they truly love the Lord, they will accept God's call to come out of Babylon and to join his people. So this is the dark ages because everybody looks to the Bishop of Rome as vicarious silly day, as the vicar of the Son of God. Vicar means substitute of the Son of God. I have statements. You have it in the material that, that most of you probably bought, the notes on Daniel 7, where, where uh, Pope after Pope says, we occupy the place of God on earth. Amazing. You know, and, and in fact, there are statements there where, uh, where uh, the Roman Catholic priesthood says, you know, when we change the, the, the wafer into the body of Jesus, we become the creators of the creator. You know, he shall speak blasphemies against the most high folks. That's placing the creature over and above the creator. That's exactly the picture that we find in Second Thessalonians chapter 2. Now let's go to our next page. Wow, are we ever behind on this one? But anyway, you'll be patient with me, won't you? Well, good. <laughs> ah, vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. Next page, page three. In the holy place, incense was placed upon the golden altar, and the smoke ascended continually before the Lord. The incense represented the precious merits of Jesus presented before the Father when his people prayed. In other words, you pray to Jesus so that Jesus will present your sins and he will forgive your sins before the Father. Whom does the Roman Catholic Church say can forgive sins? A human priesthood. When the priest says, Ego te absolvo, which in Latin means I absolve you or I forgive you, the person can go home with the assurance of forgiveness. My Bible tells me that God is the one who forgives when we come before the throne of Jesus. In other words, what the little horn did was steal all of the functions that belonged to Jesus and take the sanctuary that belonged to Jesus and he set it up where? He set it all up on earth. He set up a rival sanctuary with a rival system of mediation and salvation. Number six. We are also told that the little horn would cast what? Down the... The what? Ah, yes. The place. Come on, folks. Did you answer your lesson? The place of the prince's sanctuary. Now, my question is, which sanctuary is being referred to here? Well, let's take a look at this. This is happening when? When is the little horn doing this work? He's doing it during the Middle Ages, right? Was the Jerusalem temple in existence at that time? No, it was destroyed in the year 70. So was there any temple on earth, any physical temple on earth, where the little horn could be carrying on this work? Not directly, no. In a spiritual temple, yes. Remember we studied Second Thessalonians chapter 2? That the Antichrist would sit where? In the temple of God, showing himself to be God. Now, would he be able to sit in the heavenly temple? 
No. So he would take his place where? In the spiritual earthly temple, which is the church, as we studied. Now, this means that he cannot be sitting in a literal temple because there was no literal temple. Jerusalem had been destroyed. Now the question is, what functions of the sanctuary or the temple does this little horn take over? Well, we need to find out where the prince is because it says that he, that he tramples on the prince. So who is the prince? Jesus. So if we know where Jesus is, we know who he's warring against and what he's warring against. Now my question is, where is Jesus today? Is Jesus in a sanctuary today? Which one? In the heavenly sanctuary. Notice this note. As we have already seen, the little horn represents the Roman Catholic system. This being the case, the sanctuary could not be the literal Jewish temple, which was destroyed in the year 70. Hebrews 8, 1 and 2, identifies the sanctuary which the little horn cast down. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. In the where? In the heavens. A minister of the what? Of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which the Lord erected and not man. Where is that sanctuary that is trampled on by the little horn? It is in heaven. And where is the prince? In heaven. By the way, the word, the Hebrew word place, makon, in Daniel 8.11 is used 17 times in the Old Testament and in every case it refers to God's dwelling place in heaven. So when it says that he cast down the place of his sanctuary, you can know that it's the heavenly sanctuary because the 17 uses of this word refer to God's dwelling place in heaven. The question is, if the sanctuary, the host, and the prince were all in heaven, how could they be cast down by the Roman Catholic system when this system was on earth? The fact is that the Roman Catholic system took, took over the temple where? On earth. And what is the temple on earth? The church. By the way, is there a very close connection between the spiritual temple on earth and the heavenly sanctuary in heaven? Of course there is. Now let's notice number seven. Though the literal temple is in heaven, the shadow of that temple is where? On earth. Christ is in the heavenly temple, serves the needs of his people on earth. Does he not? So there's a very close connection. The foundations of the earthly temple are the apostles and prophets. The what? The chief cornerstone is Jesus. The presence of God is manifested in the temple through the Holy Spirit. And God's people are the living stones built upon the foundation stones. Jesus ministers in heaven for his people where? For his people on earth. So because the little horn couldn't uh, take over Christ's place in heaven, what did he did? He, what did he do? He took over his place where? On earth. And by taking over the sanctuary system in the church on earth, people look, instead of looking to heaven, where do they look? They look to an earthly system that cannot bring salvation. By the way, can we enter the heavenly sanctuary today? Can we enter the heavenly sanctuary today? Sure. You, do, you, do you know that in Hebrews chapter 4 it says that we can come boldly to the throne of grace to find help in time of need? Now wait a minute. What kind of rocket do you take to get up there? <laughs> See, you don't enter physically you're a member of the church here, and your focus, your faith is where? 
in heaven. But what this system did was it shifted the focus of people from what Jesus was doing in heaven and it focused where? To earth, where salvation cannot come. Are you understanding what I'm saying here? Now let's read the note here. In Daniel 8, we see two princes who are struggling for the souls of human beings. One of them performs a continual ministry of salvation in the heavenly sanctuary by pleading the blood of his one and only sacrifice before the Father. That's represented by the altar of sacrifice. He feeds his people with the word of God. That's the showbread. He keeps the light of the church burning by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's the candlestick. And forgives those who come to him in penitence and prayer, represented by the altar of incense. The other prince, Unable to usurp the heavenly ministry of the prince establishes a counterfeit continual ministry. The mass, the words of men, the confessional, etc. in the church, that is in the earthly temple. By getting people to focus on this counterfeit ministry, the little horn casts down the place of the heavenly sanctuary and keeps human beings from discerning the saving work of Christ. Without being able to discern the saving work of Christ in heaven, souls perish in sin. Is, is what we're talking about tonight serious stuff? Yeah. It's a matter of life and death. This is not, we're not, we're not playing games here. You know, I could, I could come and I could, uh, I could tell you beautiful stories that could entertain you. But I'm not into that thing. Those of you who know me know that I'm not into that kind of thing because we're too late in the history of the world to be playing games. It's time that people know the truth because the truth brings freedom. Notice number eight. When David prayed to God in heaven, I want you to see the connection between the two sanctuaries. When David prayed to God in heaven, he said, Hear the plea of your servant and of your people Israel. When we pray toward this what? Place. He's talking about the Jerusalem temple. If you read the context. But then he says, Oh, here, where? In heaven, you're dwelling place. So when they prayed on earth, what was happening? The prayer was actually going where? The prayer was going to heaven. So there's a connection between the spiritual temple on earth and the literal temple in heaven where Jesus ministers. Number nine, in order to carry on his nefarious work, the little horn was given a what? An army. What does that indicate that he was given an army? Did the little horn in Daniel 7 join with the state to accomplish his purposes? In Daniel chapter 2, did the feet have clay? The church? In Revelation chapter 13, did the beast appeal to the power of the state? Yes. Will the United States of America also appeal to the power of the state? Yes. Do you know what the Bible calls that? It calls it fornication. Because the church should only depend on Jesus to fulfill the mission of the church. It should never call the state to fulfill the mission of the church because when you do, you're asking the help of another husband other than Jesus. That's why this is so terrible in the sight of God. It's because when the church tries to get the state to convert people by force, they're forgetting Jesus who persuades people to accept the truth by persuasion, not by force. That's why the Bible calls the union of church and state fornication. Now the note says, this clearly shows that the little horn would receive the military aid of the civil power to carry out his war against the daily. Like the little horn of Daniel 7, it would prosper for a time. Did you notice this is a little horn, it went well for him? He prospered in both chapters. 
So, wow, things went well. So he must have been right. That's the conclusion that many people reach. See, he's the most powerful. He has the most people. And so he's on the right track. He prospered. By the way, that's why judgment is convoked in heaven. The purpose of the judgment is to judge the little horn. Because he's done all these evil things. And he's prospered. Things have gone well. So God says, okay, now, uh, you do these things on earth and I'm going to judge you in heaven. Do you know why the ram is used now? Do you understand a little better why the ram is used? It represents the daily service. And what is God going to do to this power that takes away the days? He's going to judge him on the day of atonement. The yearly service. There you have the male goat. Now, let's go quickly to the last section of the lesson. The cleansing of the sanctuary. After seeing the work of the ram, the male goat and the little horn, the video goes blank. <laughs> and one heavenly messenger asks another a question. How long? Better translation is until when? Now that the emphasis is not on the length, the emphasis is on the ending point. Until when? Will the what? Will the vision be concerning the what? The daily, delete the word sacrifices, the daily is much more than the sacrifice. And the transgression of desolation, the giving of both the what? The sanctuary and the host to be trampled underfoot. Until, in other words, until when is the little horn going to do this without God taking measures to correct it? Are you following me? Now, very important to note, very important. The word vision here is chazon. I hate to bring in all these Hebrew words, but it has, it has to be, because if I didn't, you would never guess the importance that these words have. And as I say, look at Strong's, or Young's, or Cruden's, or whatever concordance you want to look at, and you'll see that I'm telling you the truth about these words. The word chazon is the word that is used to describe the totality of the vision which includes the ram, the male goat, the little horn, up to the cleansing of the sanctuary. Because it's the word that is used in Daniel chapter 8, verses 1 and 2, where Daniel says that he saw this vision, he saw the chazon. Are you clear on this point? In other words, this word denotes the totality of the vision of Daniel 8. From the ram, all the way to the cleansing of the sanctuary. That's the vision. Okay? Now, let's continue reading. This clearly indicates that the 2300 days could not be what? Literal. Because the kingdoms of Persia, Greece, and Rome lasted much longer than 2300 literal days, which would be six and a half years. Are you understanding my point or not? The word has own vision that Daniel saw covers the ram, the male goat, the little horn, and reaches up to the time of the cleansing of the sanctuary. Let me ask you, could the 2300 days be literal days? It can't. So in other words, the 2300 days have to be what? They have to be years in order to cover Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, Papal Rome, reaching all the way up to the judgment. It would have to be years 
because 2,300 days, literally speaking, is only six and a half years. Are you with me? Number 10. The answer to the question was provided by the other angelic messenger. For 2,300 days, then the sanctuary shall be cleansed. Which sanctuary? <laughs> You're speaking about some rebuilt Jerusalem temple? No. By the way, I want to read the note. See, in English, you never catch these nuances. And they're extremely important. Notice the note. The word for sanctuary in verses 11 and 12 where it says that the, the place of the sanctuary was cast down is the Hebrew word mikdash. But now, in Daniel 8.14, the word is suddenly changed to kodesh. Isn't that interesting? The word for sanctuary in verses 11 and 12, he cast the place of his sanctuary to the ground. That's mikdash. And then suddenly in Daniel 8.14, it says the kodesh shall be cleansed. Why the change in words? I believe the reason is that the angel wanted to link Daniel 8 with Leviticus 16. Now we don't have time to talk about Leviticus, uh, Leviticus chapter 16, but that describes the Day of Atonement. The great judgment day of Israel. And it represented the judgment which is taking place now in heaven. The word for sanctuary in Leviticus 16 is not mikdash, it's kodesh. Which means that there's a connection between Daniel 8 and Leviticus 16. Leviticus 16 is the explanation of Daniel 8. Of what's happening in Daniel 8. What the cleansing of the sanctuary is. If you please. Now what is this talking about? Leviticus 16 describes the cleansing of the Hebrew sanctuary on the Day of Atonement. Once a year, the high priest entered the most holy place of the sanctuary to cleanse it from the sins of Israel. The word for sanctuary in Leviticus 16 is not mikdash, but kodesh. Thus, there is a direct link between Daniel 8.14 and Leviticus 16. And in our next class, we'll deal a little bit, bit more with this um, uh, connection between Leviticus 16 and Daniel chapter 8. In other words, what's happening in Daniel 8, the cleansing of the sanctuary, is developed and explained in the Day of Atonement of Leviticus 16. Are you understanding what I'm saying? All the sins that have been placed in the sanctuary... What will happen on the Day of Atonement to all those sins that were forgiven, that were covered by the blood? They were cleansed from the sanctuary. And the Day of Atonement ended. God had a clean sanctuary. And he had a clean people. Now let's go to number 11. As Daniel desired an explanation to what he had seen, he heard a voice commanding Gabriel to make the what? The vision. To make known the vision to Daniel. Now here you find another one of those strange changes in Daniel 8. Up to this point, the word for vision has been the word chazon. But suddenly, when Gabriel is told to explain the vision to Daniel, a different word for vision is used, which really means appearance. Explain to Daniel the mare. Now, do you know what the Mare refers to? It refers to the appearance of the two heavenly beings that are discussing until when will the little horn do its work without it being judged. 
and the other one says, unto 2300 days, and the sanctuary shall be cleansed. That's the moray, the conversation regarding the 2300 days. Are you following me or not? In other words, it's the portion of the total vision that deals with the conversation between these two beings that has to do with the 2300 day, with the time element of Daniel chapter 8. And in a moment, I'm going to show you how important this word is. Now let's read the note quickly. Up to this point, the word for vision has been the Hebrew chazon. But here the word is changed to moray. As we have previously seen, the word chazon covers the totality of the vision from Persia to the cleansing of the sanctuary. But the word moray means appearance and refers primarily to the time period which was discussed by the two angelic beings who appeared to Daniel. Thus, the word moray has to do primarily with the time element of the vision. This is made clear in verse 26 where Daniel is told that the vision or the marae of the evenings and mornings is true. What does the marae deal with? With the what? With the evenings and mornings. 2300. In other words, with the time element. Now, number 12. In Daniel 7, shortly after the little horn carry on its evil work, the judgment set and the books were what? Open. Who is Jesus going to judge in Daniel 7? The little horn. By the way, when he pronounced sentence against the little horn, did he pronounce a sentence in favor of his people? See, the, 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 the judgment, yes, it pronounces a sentence against the little horn. See, the little horn got away with it here. Everybody thought that it was God's system because it prevailed. It had all the power. But then in heaven, God rectifies things. See, he shows that the little horn was wrong and that his saints were right. In other words, the judgment on earth is reversed in heaven. Are you following me? So in Daniel 7, the Son of Man comes he judges the little horn, and the Bible says there in Daniel 7 that he gives the kingdom to whom? To the saints of the Most High. Now, is that the same thing as the cleansing of the sanctuary in Daniel 8? It's in the same order, the same sequence. In Daniel 7, after the little horn does its evil work, then Jesus comes in the cloud to the Ancient of Days, the books are open, and the judgment takes place. In Daniel 8, after the little horn does its work, 2300 days, and the sanctuary is going to be what? Cleansed. The cleansing of the sanctuary is the judging of the little horn. And by the way, we're going to see that this is much broader. It not only includes the judgment of the little horn, it includes the judgment of every single person that has ever lived on planet Earth. The only thing is, the emphasis in Daniel 7 and 8 is the little horn because that's the subject that's being discussed. Yes, Barry. In the judgment, isn't God also judging the little horn because the little horn condemns God's people? Sure, and it claimed to be a power that followed God. Now let me go this go through this very quickly. Let's go to the last section. Two minutes. Sorry we went so long tonight, but this is a... I have to go slow because I have to make sure you understand. This is the foundation for the lesson on Saturday night. Have you all understood pretty well what we've discussed tonight? Raise your hand if you... I see you're still awake. Praise the Lord. <laughs> I don't know how, but you are. Okay. Last section, Daniel's preoccupation with the 2300 days. A close examination of Daniel 8 reveals that Gabriel explained the meaning of the full vision to Daniel except for the vision of the evenings and mornings because it was for many what? For many days. In fact, the angel told Daniel this is what? Sealed. It's sealed. 
can't be understood at that moment. Number two, immediately after being told that the vision of evenings and mornings was for many days, Daniel fainted and was what? And was sick. Now why would he get sick about this? About this time period? You'll discover on Saturday night if you come. There was something about this time period which deeply disturbed Daniel. Chapter 8 ends with the word, now notice this, chapter 8 ends with the words, I was astonished at the marais, but no one understood it. Notice he doesn't say I was astonished at the chazon, the total vision. He says, I was worried about the marais, the part that has to do with what? With the 2300 days. He says, I was astonished at the marais, but no one understood it. So Daniel 8 ends with Daniel not understanding. Let me go quickly to this. In chapter 10 and verse 1, Chapter 8, the last word in chapter 8 is no one understood. The word it is added. No one understood the moray. Daniel 12 and verse 1 says, I, Daniel, had understanding in the moray. Now it doesn't take a rocket scientist to figure out that if at the end of chapter 8 he says, I didn't understand, and at the beginning of chapter 10 he says, I understood, then something must have happened in chapter 9 to help him understand. Are you with me? Final note. It is vitally important to realize that Daniel 8 ends in suspense. Daniel is told that the matter is sealed and he became ill. We would expect God at some point to explain what had been left unexplained, the time element. The explanation, as we shall see, is given in chapter 9. And that will be our next exciting episode in our seminar. So don't miss it. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's Word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.